1: The Federal Reserve under Jerome Powell has taken an extraordinarily bold gamble. Its response to the pandemic has dwarfed anything attempted after the global financial crisis. To his supporters, Mr Powell saved America from an economic catastrophe. To his critics, he's steering it into danger. But will the central bank chairman still be in office to see if his bets pay off? You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy, and the world of business. I'm Rachna Bogue, and also on today's show, across the rich world, there's more demand than ever for new homes.
2: The problem is there
1: aren't enough people to build them.
2: Around 300,000 jobs in America are vacant. Half of French construction firms and a fifth of German firms are struggling to find workers. And Britain has reported the highest level of vacancies in two decades.
1: And we go inside the race for America's high rollers as one by one states begin to allow betting on sports.
3: There is a massive land grab going on. Americans love sport. And so the fact that this has now become legal means there's a huge opportunity.
1: First, Central bankers and economists meet this week for their annual Jackson Hole Jamboree. It's online again, disappointing those who had hoped to enjoy inspiring views of Wyoming's Teton Mountains. But whether on screen or in person, all eyes will be on Jerome Powell, chairman of the Federal Reserve. Good afternoon. Mr. Powell might not be the most thrilling of speakers. At the Federal Reserve, we are strongly committed to achieving the monetary policy goals that Congress has given us. Again and again, he's used precisely the same phrases to kick off press conferences after setting interest rates. Maximum employment and price stability. His style is a projection of absolute control. These measures... Consistent, along with our strong guidance on interest rates, unsurprising,
4: and on our balance sheet,
1: just the way he likes it,
4: will ensure that monetary policy will continue to support the economy until the recovery is complete.
1: But this outward predictability belies the remarkable evolution in what the Fed does and how it does it that Mr Powell has overseen.
0: Powell has presided over a period of quite dramatic change at the Federal Reserve. uh, And obviously they were responding to the pandemic.
1: Simon Rabinovich is our U.S. economics editor.
0: So, if you look at the past year, I mean, the the balance sheet of the Federal Reserve has basically doubled in size. They've bought four trillion dollars worth of assets. Uh, there's also been a lot of change in terms of style. Uh, the communication uh, under under Powell has become much more plain spoken, much more targeted at ordinary Americans, and then also substantively, the framework that the Fed uses for thinking about the economy, thinking about interest rates, has also been overhauled.
1: And now Mr. Powell might be preparing for potentially his last Jackson Hole conference as chairman. What's the chatter around possible replacement or renewal at the moment?
0: Right, so we know that his term as chairman ends in February of next year. So it's expected that President Biden will make an announcement in the coming weeks, potentially around Labour Day, early September, about whether he will renew or nominate a replacement. There are within the Democrat Party a sort of progressive wing, if you will, people like Senator Elizabeth Warren, who would like somebody who they believe would be tougher on banks. Uh, but the vast majority of economists, of Fed watchers, expect that Powell will get a second term. Politically, it also would re-establish a precedent of a, a president reappointing a chairman that was initially appointed by a president from another party.
1: I want to ask you about the challenges that Mr. Powell faces if his term does get renewed. But first, let's take a quick look at his record before the pandemic struck. What do his pre-crisis choices say about him?
0: Right. So it's, it's almost easy to forget that there was a, a pre-crisis Powell, but there, but there was, you know, he, he began uh, as chairman in early 2018. Uh, he was facing a president in Donald Trump that many saw as posing the, the gravest challenge to Fed independence in decades, you know, demanding that the Fed lower interest rates. But Powell really, you know, stuck to his guns and as such was, was able to effectively defuse the challenge. Uh, and the second thing is that he began a, a really, really important review of the way that the Fed conducts monetary policy uh, in a low low-growth, low-inflation environment. And that's something that's then picked up in the post-pandemic period.
1: Now, they were thinking about a low-growth environment, but they cannot have foreseen the extent to which output collapsed as COVID first began to spread and the economy went into lockdown. The Fed reacted with great speed and really boldness. It almost took everyone by surprise, didn't it?
0: I mean, it was a remarkably aggressive set of actions by the Fed, and and also successful. If you look at, you know, one, the fact that America did avoid a financial crisis, and two, that a very vigorous economic rebound began last year. So, you know, kudos for that. But there's now this big question about. How does the Fed begin to wind that down? They're still buying $120 billion worth of assets every month, so the balance sheet is still growing apace. At the same time, inflation is now flirting with multi-decade highs. It's been running at uh, more than 5% year-on-year for a couple of months now. Uh, Now, there's a debate about whether or not this inflation is transitory or permanent, but there's this real difficult balancing act that the Fed has to figure out how to unwind its extraordinary policies, uh, you know, without causing undue damage to the economy.
1: Mr. Powell and the Fed more broadly is probably haunted by the experience of the taper tantrum in 2013 when the announcement of a, a tapering of asset purchases spooked markets. What do you expect to hear from him this week at Jackson Hole, but also in coming months about tapering?
0: One of the things the Fed is doing this time, you know, certainly differently from 2013, is they're really, really telegraphing what their moves are going to be. So we don't yet know exactly what the sequence of events is. uh, But what I'd say the base case is that maybe around the September meeting of the Federal Open Market Committee, which is the main uh, rate-setting body of the Fed, they'll effectively pre-announce that they're going to announce tapering at their November meeting. And then the November meeting might announce that tapering will begin in December. So there's going to be a real sequenced move, which is giving markets ample time to price it in. The question is whether in trying to give all of this telegraphing and all of this forewarning, are they moving too slowly?
1: But there's more to the debate about Mr. Powell's agenda and what the next four years might contain than just the tapering schedule, isn't there?
0: Well, so indeed, as I said, in the the pre-pandemic period, they did this big framework review. They moved from uh, targeting 2% inflation to targeting an average of 2% over the longer run, which is actually quite a significant change because it means that they are not just willing, but effectively committed to letting inflation run higher than 2% if there's a period in which it's been running below 2%. Prior to the pandemic, one of the conclusions that was drawn was that they could let the economy push to higher and higher employment without having inflation. They are, for the moment, sticking to that conclusion, you know, except that employment levels are far below where they were pre-pandemic, and yet inflation is much higher. And so you then have this question, has the pandemic done something to so alter the structure that this framework that seemed like a very beautiful thing a couple of years ago, all of a sudden no longer is fit for purpose.
1: Now, you mentioned another contentious topic, at least when it comes to thinking about Mr. Powell's record, and that's his approach to financial regulation. Are the criticisms lobbed at him by the progressive Democrats fair?
0: Well, certainly the progressive Democrats think they're fair. They point to the fact that a, you know a number of bank regulations and rules that had been put in place post-2008, to make the financial system safer, have been watered down. The the response to, to them, which I think is a fair response, is that, you know, actually, if you look at it in the round, uh, the capital levels in the banking system are much higher than they were in 2008. Some of the softening ha- has really been about modulating the regulations. You know, there always has to be this balance between making the banking sector safe, but not overly stifling it.
1: So, is there a way out for Mr. Biden here, where he can both keep Mr. Powell as chairman, but also look tough on bank regulation?
0: Well, yes, there is. So, one idea that's been discussed: a Fed vice chair who's responsible for banking supervision by the name of Randall Quarles, uh, you know, who's seen by the the sort of progressive critics uh, as being the deregulator in chief. His term ends in October. The darling of the progressives uh, is uh, another Fed governor, Lael Brainard who's been talked about potentially as a Powell replacement, but she could be moved into the vice chair role responsible for banking supervision, keeping Powell as chair, that would be, I think, quite politically deft of uh, President Biden to do. And I think it would also, you know, for economists and economics reporters and observers following this, it would sort of fulfill this narrative arc. You've got a chair in in Jerome Powell who has presided over this incredibly stimulative monetary policy. The big question for the next four years, which would be his second term, is whether or not the Fed can walk back from that in an elegant and not destabilizing manner.
1: Simon Rabinovich, thank you very much. Thank you. For more insights from Simon and our economics team on the goings-on at Jackson Hole and what it all means for the rest of the world, please sign up to our new weekly Money Talks newsletter. It's free. Just go to economist.com slash moneytalks to sign up. That's economist.com slash moneytalks.
4: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices
1: In the past 20 years, no company has built more American homes than D.R. Horton.
4: You know, Don Horton has said many times, never thought he'd see a day when he couldn't build every house he could sell in the state of Texas. The Texas-based
1: giant expects to build and sell more than 84,000 residential properties this financial year. Double-digit growth on the previous one. But as the firm's CEO, David Old, remarked at its recent earnings call, even this may not be enough.
4: I can tell you today, there's not enough lots or trade capacity to meet demand in the state of Texas.
1: Demand for housing is so strong that even they are struggling to keep up.
4: I don't care if you're Don Horton or uh, uh, any of the other public builders out there. It's very difficult to get a house built today. There is a tremendous amount of demand out there.
1: The firm has recently had to slow the pace of sales because it simply cannot build fast enough.
2: There's been a massive housing boom, with demand from potential buyers soaring globally in the past year.
1: Vinjeru Makandawiri is the economist's global property correspondent.
2: The problem is that shortages in labour, alongside shortages in materials such as timber and cement, have inflated costs and slowed down the delivery of new housing. All of this has coincided with double-digit price rises in many rich economies. For example, in America, they've seen the biggest annual rise in house prices in 15 years. In the UK, it's been the fastest price rise in 17 years. And we've seen similar sharp increases in countries like Germany, France and Australia. Let's take demand
1: first. Why is the demand for housing rising so quickly?
2: There's several factors influencing this. So low interest rates have made borrowing more appealing. There have also been increased savings during lockdowns. But there are changing preferences to consider. For example, lifestyle changes during the pandemic has meant some people have moved into larger homes with more space. Regardless, the upshot is the same. There's more demand than ever to buy, but not enough people to build. Why does it matter so
1: much that the construction sector is experiencing labour shortages?
2: The labour shortages in construction are a stark example of shortages that are affecting the rest of the economy. They also have an outsized impact. The supply of housing affects living standards and inequality. It affects the way that we shape and create urban environments and healthy societies. It also will impact climate targets and overall economic growth. So this should be an urgent priority. How bad are labor shortages in the construction sector? This is a long-standing issue. The industry has had difficulties recruiting since the global financial crisis. At the time, the sector globally lost 5 million workers. However, COVID has made things even worse. Around 300,000 jobs in America are vacant, and 88% of contractors are struggling to find workers. Over in Europe, half of French construction firms and a fifth of German firms are struggling to find workers. And Britain has reported the highest level of vacancies in two decades. Now, all of these recruitment difficulties are coming at a time when
1: there are still plenty of people out of work. In America, for example, the unemployment rate is still about two percentage points higher than it was before the pandemic struck. So why can't construction
2: companies fill these roles? You could argue that anxiety around COVID and having the financial cushion of stimulus checks in some countries means that workers can wait to take a new job. But in many countries, the industry has historically relied on migrant labour. And that's been impacted by travel restrictions due to the pandemic. Tougher immigration laws in recent years have also contributed to the problem. For example, Britain lost about 40% of its EU workers since it voted to leave the EU. What about local hiring? Hiring locally is difficult for several reasons. One is that construction has an image problem. People avoid it because they perceive it to be a dangerous and difficult job. Fewer than one in 10 young British people would take a job in the sector, for example. That includes even the white collar jobs in the sector in areas such as engineering, quantity surveying, and even town planning. The problem is made worse by the sector's ageing. So the median age of a construction worker in America was 43 last year, and 41% of tradesmen are expected to retire within the next decade.
1: So you put that all together then, and it sounds like these labour shortages in construction are likely to get much worse.
2: Yes. I mean, in the UK, the sector already needs an estimated 200,000 extra workers by 2025 to meet housing targets set by the government. Uh, at the same time, you have climate consideration. So Britain alone will need to retrofit 29 million existing homes to meet 2050 net zero carbon targets. And that will put even more pressure on the labor force. Uh, and on top of that, the need to fill infrastructure gaps globally will also redirect the workforce towards those areas. And this, this might put even more pressure on housing. That's all really
1: interesting and and, and sounds like quite a serious problem for the construction industry. What do you think they can do about this?
2: Recruiting more widely is one. At the moment, construction is overwhelmingly white and male. 89% of the workforce in America is white and male, and there are similar numbers in the UK. Improving training and apprenticeship opportunities is another way to make sure the sector is attracting young people. Automation is an interesting one because it's a way to increase productivity without necessarily hiring extra people. It's an area that the industry has been slow to embrace and automation extends to Newer methods of construction, such as 3D printing, which is not only better for the environment, but it also requires less labour. So there are a number of solutions out there that could help ensure that the construction industry of the future is built on more solid foundations.
1: Vinjeru, thank you very
2: much. Thank you, Rachna. And Vinjeru's been out and about
1: exploring the wonders of 3D printed houses for the science and technology section this week too subscribers to The Economist can read all about how the technique could alleviate housing crises around the world and even help humans build on other planets. If you're not yet a subscriber, there's a special offer for listeners at economist.com podcastoffer podcast offer, and you can find the link in the notes for this episode. And finally, it's proverbial that in gambling, the house always wins. Today, the industry is worth some half a trillion dollars, despite still sitting on the fringes of polite business society. Although the name Flutter Entertainment may not ring many bells with customers, many will know its brands. The company runs gaming and bookmaking stalwarts like Paddy Power, Betfair, PokerStars and FanDuel. It has a market capitalisation of $33 billion and is part of London's FTSE 100 index of blue-chip shares. Flutter finds itself on a remarkable roll, share price recovered quickly from the early shock of the pandemic and it's posted strong profits since our european business editor stan pinard interviewed its chief executive peter jackson about what's behind flutter's winning streak
3: a lot of the mainstream sports that our customers would bet on were stopping and that was you know of real concern but we were fortunate that actually a number of sports were able to keep going around the world so in particular horse racing and we also have poker stars and you know, when people were asked to stay at home and couldn't go out, you know, the opportunity to play a game of poker with their friends, you know, online over over Zoom was something that was very attractive. You know, we're not out of this yet, but you know, the two things we're seeing are what seems to be a a fairly permanent step up in the size of the number of customers on our platforms. I think the second thing that we saw was that when people didn't have any alternatives people slightly increase the frequency with which they were engaging with our platforms. And I think that you know, we're a great example of a business that can thrive in the digital environment. We don't need a physical location, so to customers are supposed to enjoy our, our products and services.
4: Hmm. So the rise of digital is, is an opportunity. It's also a challenge, right? You speak a lot about the importance of, of safer gaming. Uh, the word safe or safer appears over 150 times in your latest annual report. But there is a concern among regulators that online betting is maybe is maybe too easy, too readily available. How do you make sure that gambling stays safe as it becomes so convenient?
3: Look, we invest an awful lot of money in making sure that we have the systems to ensure that our customers are safe on our platforms. I mean, we've been you know leading a number of changes. In the industry, you can see in Ireland recently, we've moved unilaterally to stop customers using uh, credit cards for for wagering, That's something that we've also done in the UK, and you'll see it coming into place in in Australia. One of the advantages of digital is you can track all of the customers' activities, and if we are concerned that a customer is exhibiting signs of stress, we will intervene and, and ultimately stop them using our services.
4: Investors seem keen on two mega opportunities when it comes to gaming. The first is online, the growth of mobile betting, which we've talked about. Uh, The second is America, where you are a sports betting heavyweight through through FanDuel. Just to put it in context, if you look at Flutter's US operation on paper, it it doesn't look like much. It's 13% of revenues last year. It's loss-making. But speak to investors, and they see it very differently. The US operation is valued at more than the rest of Flutter, nine-tenths of which is not in the US. Why are they so bullish?
3: Yeah, I took my my family over you know a couple of years ago for one of the midterm breaks. And I, as I said to the kids on the on the flight over there, and everything is big in America. Mm. And when I joined this business as CEO at the beginning of 2018, one of the first things I did was decide to start spending money building out, rather speculatively, a sports betting product for America. And at that time, it wasn't allowed. But I, I wanted to make sure that we could get ahead of the curve, because speed is often of the essence when these opportunities open up. And so, in, uh, you know, on the 14th of May uh, 2018, when PASPA was repealed, which is essentially the legislation that uh, made online sports betting in America illegal, you know, we were able to enter the market. And it's on a sort of state-by-state basis.
4: Yeah. And I should say, so so 22 states now, I think, uh, have legal sports betting and a bunch of them like Ohio, Florida, New York are coming online soon. I mean, clearly that that's the reason for the opportunity, right? Is It, it used to be illegal and now it's legal. Yeah.
3: And, and that's exactly right. And so, there is a massive land grab going on. Americans love sport. They'll have bets with each other about sport. And so the fact that this has now become legal means there's a huge opportunity. And we've moved very quickly to take advantage of that. So we bought the FanDuel brand. And with it came you know, a very large database of, of, of customers in the US who were very interested in sports betting because daily fantasy sports was the closest thing you could find to sports betting at the time. And a very well-established brand. It had hundreds of millions of dollars spending on it. And you know, we've used that brand combined with the you know, the group technology, the know-how and expertise that we have in, in sports betting around the world to sort of really go after the market in America. And in quarter two, we had around 45% market share of the online sports betting market, which is pretty astonishing for Uh, Any business, but particularly so for a non American business to have such a strong position in the States is pretty unusual.
4: One thing I picked up in in your latest results just a few days ago is the cost of acquisition of customers in America. Uh, You are spending, you said, $291 to attract each punter. So that's marketing costs and so on. Uh, That seems like a huge outlay. uh, And the flip side is you're clearly expecting to make at least that much on average from each user. Now, three hundred dollars in gross revenue from somebody placing bets. Um, so the amount they lose minus whatever they might win might be. That suggests bets over time of thousands of dollars, maybe tens of thousands of dollars across quite a wide population. Is that what you're expecting?
3: So, look, the you know, the tip. You know, we we announced, you know, having acquired you know over you know, two million customers so far in, in the U.S. That the average acquisition cost is two hundred ninety-one dollars. And what we're seeing is that those customers would generate revenue with us, that we'll see them pay back within approximately the first year. So that means that we'll acquire revenues from those customers of $300 approximately. It's a very fast payback for us, but I think we have by far the best product in America, and that's why they keep coming back.
4: What about regulation in other markets? Uh, New rules opened up the U.S. opportunity Could things go the other way in other markets? Is that a risk?
3: We we operate in a a very heavily regulated space. And so there are positive and negative regulatory challenges for us. So recently in Germany, for example, they very substantially changed the regulations there. And it's made it very, very difficult to operate a profitable business there. Mm. But we're seeing these opportunities in the U.S. at the moment. Canada is going to uh, introduce legislation soon. The same in Brazil. The same in Holland, and we'll be seeking to grow our business in those markets.
4: I have a question about competition. Clearly, you have rivals in the gaming industry, people who offer sports books and casinos and, and so on, like you do. This is going to sound a bit left field, but genuinely, when you look at things like crypto, like Bitcoin, like Robin Hood, where people are betting on whether GameStop shares are going to pop or they're going to crash, is that a rival service to the regulated gaming industry?
3: You know, ultimately, you know, we help people enjoy an endorphin rush, right? And I think people get something similar out of some of those products and platforms. So you know, I, I do think that people are effectively you know, rolling the dice to some extent with some of the stocks that they're investing in on Robinhood. They're certainly not doing it for long-term reasons. To some extent, they are competitors, yeah.
4: The manner in which we place bets has changed from visiting bookies to tapping on a phone screen. But it doesn't seem that what we bet on has changed all that much. It's still a lot of sports, it's horses, it's cards, it's casino games. Do you see any evolution on the things that we bet on? What what is the next frontier of gaming?
3: So we have investments in all sorts of weird and wonderful things. We have a fantastic game on the Oculus VR headset. Mm. We see a very large number of consumers playing virtual reality poker. Now, this is a free-to-play game. And we earn money on there because people like to dress their avatars up with false beards, hats, moustaches and cigars to create characters, you know, as themselves. And so we earn money from the skins we're selling on that platform. It's an amazing insight in terms of you know, how the world is going to change and actually some of the products and services on those platforms are amazing.
1: Our thanks to Peter Jackson and Stan Pinal. And thank you for listening to Money Talks. While you're with us, do take a moment to rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You can also write to us directly at podcast.economist.com. The producer is Amika Shortino-Nolan. Nico Raufast is our sound engineer. The editor this week is John Shields. I'm Rachna Shanbhog, and in London, this is The Economist.